this week on the Backtable Podcast. What was remarkable is I worked with a bunch of surgeons on that study and, and it showed the, that per hour that you're later to intervening, the odds ratio of causing mortality is like 1.7 per hour. So that makes complete sense. The longer you wait to intervene, the more problems and the chance, increased chance of death the patients are going to have. So the faster you can get them in, faster you can get them treated, the better they're going to be. Makes logical sense. So uh, what was remarkable to me was, and not to bag on shock trauma, they're a great place, but their average uh, time was more in the range of about four hours. Wow. But those patients, most of their patients go to CT beforehand. Ours do not. We still operate on a very archaic protocol, but it actually works quite well. And that is, they come into the ER, you rule out solid organ injury. So either by fast or, or DPL, you say, okay, there's no intraperitoneal blood. They're unstable. They have a known pelvic fracture. Just go to IR. So we're pretty quick and our average time was about 80 something minutes to get them into the angio suite. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. Today's Backtable Podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific Interventional Oncology and Embolization Division, or IOE. Boston Scientific IOE is an international provider of medical devices for the interventional radiologist. Boston Scientific's goal is to become interventional radiology's leading partner by enabling and developing minimally invasive procedures for the detection, diagnosis, treatment, and palliation of cancer and other non-cancer diseases. Boston Scientific IOE has recently launched the TrueSelect 2-French microcatheter. This selective microcatheter is specifically designed to access small and tortuous peripheral vasculature to deliver all 018 coils, embolics up to 700 microns, and Y90 products, including Therospheres. It also has the first ever 175-centimeter length microcatheter, ideal for radial access. Visit bostonscientific.com or contact your local Boston Scientific sales representative for more information on the TrueSelect 2-French microcatheter and to learn what it can do for you. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. Today, we're going to be talking about the role of IR in the trauma setting uh, and the endovascular treatment of solid organ trauma uh, and pelvic trauma. And I'm honored to welcome our guest today, Dr. Chris Ingram, Chief of Vascular and Interventional Radiology at University of Washington, where he's also the Associate Program Director for the IR Residency. Chris, thank you for joining us uh, and sharing your time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Chris, a lot of our listeners are medical students and trainees. Uh, and so before we start getting into uh, how you're treating trauma patients at UW, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your residency program for any potential applicants listening. Sure. So I was... Um to tout my own horn here, I was the founding program director for the integrated residency. So I was of the old school of being part of the VIR fellowship, which of course was founded more than 20, almost 30 years ago, um, where it was just one year. So I was program director when that still existed until it sunset last year in 2020. And of course there were mandated changes that everybody would get two years of training in some way. So really helped get that going here at the UW. And we were part of sort of the first wave of programs that were accepted or, or accredited by the ACGME for that. So um, since about 2016, we've had that residency, the integrated, so med students that can apply directly for medical school and the independent um, we also offer here. So people that decide later or after doing a DR residency that they want to uh, do AR, they also can. So we have three positions per year in our integrated residency. So we take three med students a year into each class We've done that for, I think, probably our fifth match cycle will be coming up. 
And then the independent, I still value that quite a bit because you find some great people that decide later that they want to do IR. Um, and we offer one to two spots for that every year. Seems like you guys do uh, a little bit of everything. I mean, you know, it's a pretty well-rounded program from what I understand. Um, what do you guys do a lot of? Yeah. So what I, I actually came from New York. I went to NYU for medical school, which is now free. Good luck to everybody that's there. You guys are lucky. <laughs> but I, I came out here and what's unique about here and part of the reason I, I matched here, I actually, as a side note, matched in general surgery. I started as a surgeon in a former life and then okay. switched into radiology. Uh, but what drew me here was the the geographic standpoint of UW is really unique. And the reason for that or what that gives to trainees, not just radiologists, but anybody that comes here is really quite a mix of cases. You'll see everything. So when I was in Manhattan, you know, there are four other really great medical schools on that island right. alone. But out here, you're really the only gig in town. There are some, a couple of smaller private hospitals, um, one of which offers some residency program. Actually, two of them do, but nothing quite like an academic program here. So you see quite a bit of trauma. I mean, we're one of the busiest trauma centers in the yeah. country. And what I tell people is that um, part of that is the, the geographic landmass that we cover um, includes Alaska. We, we talk about the Whammy region, which stands for Washington, right. Wyoming, Alaska, Idaho, in Montana. So really it's about a third of the U.S. landmass that we're covering. Um, so not only does that mean trauma patients come here, we're the only level one trauma center for that region, but also complex oncology, transplant patients, pretty much anything that can't be done. And there, throughout that region, there's a lot of small hospitals. That, that doesn't mean that in Spokane or Anchorage, there aren't good hospitals. There are, but a lot of times they can't handle advanced things. Sure. So you see everything from car accidents, but you know, fishermen, uh, boat fishermen, crab fishermen, bear manglings. It's pretty pretty interesting what you get here. So you get the gamut. And and we do serve a large immigrant population in Washington due to migrant workers. So you get, uh, you know, rare tropical diseases and things like that here as well. Do the residents work exclusively at University of Washington or are there any other sites that you guys routinely cover? Yeah. So we're affiliated with our trauma hospital, which is an integral part of it, which is Harborview Medical Center. Oh, okay. So that's, um, yeah, that serves the the county, King County, and, and our indigent population, it's really a city community hospital. And uh, then the University of Washington, sort of the flagship university center. Sure. And then we're affiliated with our veterans hospital here in Puget Sound, Seattle Children's, which is our pediatric hospital here, um, a number of other clinics. And then depending on the residency program, not so much for radiology, but some of them in the region will send people elsewhere into private practice or up to Alaska or wow. Eastern Washington to do That's rotations. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 They have a big family practice program here, which makes sense, rural medicine. But, um, you know, states like Alaska that are looking to recruit urologists or radiologists, but you, know, you occasionally can work rotations out up there, which is great. That's awesome. It sounds like a really diverse exposure for the residents. Um, yeah, it's great for them. Good deal. Chris, a lot of our episodes are, are picked at the topics are picked out by either the back table team. And sometimes people will reach out to us and say, you know, hey, you know, I want to come and talk about this. This was my idea. I really wanted to talk about trauma and I wanted to be the one who hosted it. It's, you know, it's a large part of my practice as well. And it, it's one of the two favorite things that I do in IR. I mean, these cases are, they're quick, they're effective, uh, gratifying. And uh, it's one of the most immediately impactful things that we do. And it's, you know, one of the handful of times where you sometimes get to say, it's like, oh, wow, you know, just save that guy's life. So what about you? I mean, this is, it's not only a large part of your practice, but, you know, also one of your clinical and research focuses. How did you get into trauma? What is it about it that that makes us your thing? Yeah, so I I think part of it comes from uh, my start in surgery. So I did two years. Okay. I was a general surgery resident with the intent of doing thoracic, probably. But I I really I think 
there was a change of heart that I had, and I always encourage medical students, you know, if you don't have it figured out now, don't worry. Some of the best people I've met in medicine have changed fields. And what's interesting in IR, even in my group, there are people that were in orthopedics, plastic surgery, medicine. One of my guys is a pharmacist here or was a pharmacist in a former life. So um, a lot of times you end up doing your training and you realize, hey, I really like what they're doing. And I didn't really have much exposure to radiology in medical school. So I kind of was in the old school, hey, medicine or surgery type of mindset. And I chose surgery. And then once I got here, I really enjoyed working in trauma. It was a very trauma-heavy program. Yeah. And I loved working at Harborview. And we were kind of on the front lines. Things have changed. Now they have an emergency res- residency program here. They did not when I was a trainee initially. It was just you staff the ER and there was a surgery side and the medicine side. And that was it. Really? Really. So it really is like Grey's Anatomy. It was. And, and it was <laughs> it was outdated. I mean, it was like the 1970s, but they did a good job. And if we weren't busy in trauma, we'd go help in medicine and you'd see somebody with toe pain. So it was That's kind cool. of like an old school doctor. But but uh, I spent a lot of time in trauma and and the radiologists were phenomenal. And I'd go back to review scans. They literally were right side, outside our fishbowl. They still are. You can go in there and say, hey, can you look at the scan for me? And they really knew anatomy as well as a surgeon. And they knew what was important. They knew what you were looking for. And it kind of drew me to them to say, hey, you guys, what you guys do is pretty cool. And I would follow some patients down to IR. We did a lot of embolizations. And I said, this is kind of great. You know, you're not cutting people open. You get to do this work internally. And it was kind of a no-brainer for me. I finished up my second year, which was a lot of ICU training, which ended up being beneficial for IR, but I was lucky enough to switch into radiology. So I think that's where my love for trauma came from. It's still, you know, it's not all I do, but um, I do spend a lot of time at Harborview and we deal with it on call. But when I was interested in IR, I think the attendings here liked me because at that time it was when oncology, everybody cared about oncology. And, yeah. And I was like, I like trauma. I like the dialysis where all the stuff that we were doing at Harborview. So kind of the oh, everything man. else. I bet you were really popular. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So everybody wanted to do <laughs> oncology. I was like, I think trauma and, and everything else we do in IR is really interesting. So we have a really heavy volume here. Um, when you look at solid organ and pelvic trauma, I mean, we're probably the busiest place in the country for number wow. of mobilizations that we do. So there's plenty of it. And I always tell the trainees, you'll, you'll be better trained here than probably most people will be in their career. So and then our radiologists are great. So research opportunities and looking at imaging before and after intervention is really helpful. And, um, you know, cost effectiveness. You mentioned uh, when you reach out to me about a study we recently published about getting patients into the angio suite quickly, how important that is. So uh, there's really a lot we can do in, in a lot. Most states, particularly the state of Washington, has a good trauma registry to follow patients. So it's pretty easy to do research and the surgery teams have pretty, pretty good coordinators and support. Well, let's talk a little bit about the trauma team at University of Washington. Um, presumably, there are a lot of components of the team. Is it mainly trauma surgery that is kind of quarterbacking it? Yeah, correct. And and I think that historically comes from, like I said, that separation in the ER between surgery and medicine. They kind of just would yeah. come see every patient. Now, since the emergency room has its own residency and a lot of ER trained physicians, they're part of that. And they're obviously the doctors that are staffing the ER for when the patients come in. But if a trauma code gets activated, you know, depending on the level of instability or severity of the injury, a lot of times the trauma surgeons are already there waiting. Um, Otherwise, if there's stable trauma, then surgery is consulted. They come see the patient. So when do you guys get activated? I mean, do you get an alert anytime there's a level one trauma or, you know, does it kind of happen? You know, they decide if if we're going to need to be involved and then let you know. Yeah, they pretty much decide if we're going to be involved. The reason for that is we have such a high volume. If we got yeah. notified of every activation, it would be quite a bit. So, but a lot of times if we're there during the day or already there, they they will let us know, hey, there's an unstable pelvis down here or whatever, and we'll let you know if we need you. But typically they're 
uh, they, meaning the trauma surgeons yeah. and the emergency room physicians are pretty knowledgeable about the protocols we follow for, okay. for pelvis and solid organ to know when we're involved. That's really useful. That, that was something I was going to ask you. And, and I've noticed that, you know, in my own experience, mainly in, in, you know, academic centers, the trauma surgeons are, are pretty comfortable with, you know, understanding when we would normally come in and do a procedure. Correct. And so, um, yeah, that's what I was wondering. I mean, you know, do they usually just consult you on patients that you're going to have to embolize or do you guys end up having to see some of these other kind of lower grade injuries where, you know, they're, they're not really sure. Yeah, they. I would say they're good about reaching out in either case. So okay. usually they'll let us know, hey, we need you. And I always teach my trainees, you know, look at the imaging. But if they ask you to come in, come in. You know, you don't really need to <laughs> argue it or learn more. Just get a sense of what their injuries are and how stable is the patient. Are you moving them down there now? We're strategically or geographically within the hospital beneficial that we're right down the hall from where the ER yeah. is. So it's easy to get patients down there. But for the lower grade injuries or ones that they're questioning, maybe the patient's up on the unit, they came in yesterday, oh, this they seem like they could be unstable. They'll reach out to us and say, hey, can you take a look at this yeah. and we'll review it with okay. them. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. If I get a call out, you know, if they want me to do it, that's not something I really fight about, you know. Yeah, and it's usually reasonable. And yeah. of course, there are going to be cases where you walk in there and say, this is going to be nothing and it turns out to be a disaster and right. other ones where, you know, you think they're going to be fine and they're they're not. So it's, it works both ways. Totally. And I don't want to be the one responsible for someone called me and it's like, hey, you know, kind of on the fence about the splenic injury. We kind of want you guys to come in and embolize it. And I don't, I don't want to say no and then have the spleen rupture. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been surprised. Sometimes you're surprised in a good way and, and the opposite. So totally. usually just, just go do it. And, and most of the time, like you, or as you gain experience, if you're comfortable with trauma, it's very straightforward. It's almost always the same sort of right. strategy for treatment. So it, it doesn't take that long when you get good at it. Most of them are very routine. Yeah, they're they're fast, they're exciting, they're fun cases. It's, honestly, it's one of my favorite things I do. Yeah. So when you guys get consulted, I mean, you know, I know that you guys are doing this too. I mean, they, they track the times for pretty much everything. You know, what's the time expectation for you guys to be there available? Yeah, so we have a benefit uh, that our tech is in-house 24 hours. And that's because our angio suites, we, at Harborview, we also cover um, cardiac cath and neuro for stroke. Yeah. So- there's someone always around because we all look at those metrics, you know, door to balloon yeah. for cardiac intervention for stroke. And then similarly for trauma, I'd say, you know, going back to my paper, we're the slowest. And that's because patients have other injuries. When you come in for a stroke, totally. it's one thing, cardiac cath, usually one thing. But for us, you're dealing with a head injury, you know, lacerations everywhere. You got teams all over the patient. So it tends to move slower, but um, our techs are there. So they're usually the fastest one to set up the room. Now, what if they're dealing with a stroke in another room or cardiac cath, they usually will have to call someone else in. But so the expectation is that you get there within a half an hour. That's pretty good. Yeah. And then the, the nurses and anesthesia that are actually in-house and they, uh, our stat nurses or after hour nurses will be with the patient. So that's never the delay. And I, I would say as a physician, all of us live pretty close to the hospital. And I've, in my career, maybe the patient's been on the table waiting for me two times in the past 10 years. So yes. it's usually not the physician that's holding it up. It's loading the patient and getting wow, absolutely. all the hardware and, and traction. I mean, that's stroke and cardiac. I mean, even though they're dealing with the brain and the heart, I think we've got other issues to deal with, which are challenging. Very much. And the workup is all different and it's all going to vary depending on, you know, what is injured. Uh, but exactly. no, we, my group also covers stroke. And so that, you know, this is a challenge we've had when you get a level one trauma and a stroke at the same time, uh, we are considering making that move to keep our techs in house. And, uh, we've had to arrange, you know, backup coverage for tech for that exact reason. You know, having yeah. to triage those is, is really tough. Uh, you know, you're tracking the numbers for all of them. 
Yeah, we we have kind of there, there's always that tech at night, and then there's cardiac has its own call system because they usually require two techs, one to scrub, yeah. one to film. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not as familiar with that, but I understand their software is a little different for what they're doing and monitoring the patient. But so there's a there's basically three groups of techs that take calls. So we're lucky. I know some people aren't. Yeah, that's in really smaller nice. cities. You know, they're calling somebody in for these things. Good deal. Well, I think it gives a pretty good background to start talking about how you treat these patients. And we'll talk about pelvic trauma in a little bit. We'll start with solid organ trauma. For listeners, mainly talking about, you know, liver, spleen, and kidney, you know, we, we always have, you know, the occasional outlier, like an intercostal bleed, or um, we actually sure. also do where I am um, a head and neck trauma, which uh, can be kind of uh, pretty challenging for some of those. So anyway, just you know, I know every injury is different. Every patient is different, but what do you consider, you know, the general indications for doing an embolization for solid organ trauma? Yeah, I usually, um, I see IR has evolved over the years, especially here. We were early to adopt this as sort of consultations, not just putting an order in the fax machine right. and you do it. But when it comes to trauma, I, I, we have a good relationship with our trauma surgeons. I usually say when they ask for it, I do it. Me too. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not thinking about what it is, but it's like, well, that's a grade two, so I don't think I should be doing it. It's, no, they <laughs> usually make a good case for it of the patient's been unstable. I already took him to the OR. I don't know what's going on. Can you just take a look? Well, why not? It doesn't really hurt to do an angio. That's how it all started was I diagnostic agree. angiograms, right? And and you're there. You can intervene if you need to, as long as the patient can travel down. Um, a lot of times I will just do it. So, you know, when you when you look at recommendations from trauma societies and, and SIR about what the thing right thing to do is, yeah, there's a general trend to higher grade lacs going to angio, but I've had some pretty nasty lower grade lacs that just happen to be probably through a vessel or some yeah. high real estate area, which can be bad. So if the, you know, and that's the thing with trauma, sometimes you get away from actually thinking about the whole picture and you're just going based on an algorithm. But, you know, when it comes down to it, you're unsure, just bring the patient to angio and see what's going on. I agree, but that does bring up an interesting question. I mean, most of the time I have one of those where I'm kind of on the fence and, you know, they want me to take a look or I feel like taking a look. Most of the time I'm, I'm still doing the embolization on those cases. Do you uh, often run into a scenario where you end up just doing a diagnostic NGO? Yeah, I, I would say that I lean probably like you towards, I can always find something to embolize. If the patient's with me and unstable, then I think there's some benefit to empiric embolization, particularly for pelvis. We can talk about that. Yeah. Or liver, you know, but in an, and in a spleen, if, if they're grade three or higher, or there was some vascular injury on the CAT scan, then I'm just going to embolize because you usually don't see active extraf. So yeah, I, I think that a misconception amongst the surgeons, and I teach the trainees this a lot of times is they'll tell us, oh, what did you see? Was there active extrav or only embolize if you see active extrav? And I say, that's not how it works. And there are good studies that show that the spleen usually won't even bleed until it's manipulated and intraoperatively. So it can be intermittent. You know, yeah. there are times where I may not embolize if I really feel, okay, the patient's stable. Maybe they've stopped. The injury wasn't that bad. The lack is small. But if they had the whole right lobe of their liver was, you know, had this huge laceration, I don't think giving some gel foam is really that, gel foam is really that harmful if you need to. So what are you doing with hemodynamically unstable patients? Because, you know, the, the board question is that if they're unstable, you know, it's a laparotomy, but I'm treating a lot of borderline unstable patients, like not to the point where like I'm worried about them coding during the embolization, but I mean, that, that sometimes that's the reason for the consult. It's like, hey, we were watching this laceration, patients getting a little bit, blood pressure getting a little bit low. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, good question. I think that probably similar to most trauma centers, unstable patient solid organ injury go to the OR. But again, there are those patients that they're stable, they go up to the unit, their crit is drifting. How much is a drift? When do you start to worry? 
maybe they've had a couple soft pressures. Do they really need to go to the OR and get their spleen removed and they're a young patient? I think that's where the surgeons are kind of saying, okay. why don't you just try to embolize? If we're going to take out their whole spleen or part of their liver to do this, why not see if you can control it first? Now, that may affect your outcomes in looking at non-operative management if it fails, but I don't really think it hurts to try those cases. I, I, I would say I've seen them quite a bit in splenic injury patients where they're a bit tenuous. Maybe they should yeah. go to the OR. I'm perfectly fine trying to embolize those and see if it helps them because Same. what's the alternative? They get their spleen out. I'll, I'll take a chance. Yeah, it usually seems to be spleens for me too. Hey, a question mm -hmm. I had for you that I hadn't originally thought to ask is that, you know, I mean, you guys also cover a large uh, children's hospital. I'm, I'm covering one as well. And traditionally, you know, we've not done embolizations in, in pediatric patients. Has, has there been any shift in the trends toward treating the, you know, young patients or younger patients with solid organ trauma endovascularly? Yes. I, um, we originally developed our protocol, particularly for spleen for only 18 or older. Then you'd see the occasional 16, 17-year-old that looked like a full-size right. adult that they would send to us. But since uh, that paper came out in JVIR, I think it was in the past year, looking at pediatric patients, um, our surgeons have been more comfortable with us trying that. And I think particularly for splenic salvage and, and young kids, you want to avoid taking it out. So I think historically they'd sit on them for quite a while, let their crit drift pretty low before they yeah. pulled the trigger to bring them to the OR. But I think they're comfortable now sending some of them to us. We're just now starting to see a shift. It's very early. We're not doing much, but you know, we we finally reached a point where like we have to have a call team for the children's hospital because this is Oh coming. wow. They're so yeah. busy, yeah. Well, I mean, I know we're not doing many embolizations there at all, but we need to have that availability um, because like you said, I mean, we, we get a lot of like 15 and 16 year olds and South uh, people getting ATV injuries all the time. And yeah, uh, totally. We see a lot. Yeah. And ours, ours don't go to our children's hospital. All trauma comes to our trauma center, even though it's not specifically a peds hospital, but we do have a peds team there. Now yeah. the occasional kid falling off here, it's a horse, not an ATV, but kid falling off of something will make its way into the children's hospital. But a lot yeah. of times they'll just transfer them. Yeah. We used to transfer the patients from the children's hospital to our house right across the street. We just now got to where we'll, we'll go there and do the cases. Right. One more thing I see uh, in embolizations just across the board, you know, mainly for trauma or GI bleeds is, you know, you see a lot of these patients who have been a little bit unstable. The, the arteries are clamped down either from vasopressors or just from blood loss. Um, to me, I've always wondered, you know, approaching these for embolization, sizing coils and you know, whatever else I use based on the size of the vessel, but the size of the vessel when I'm treating it may be much smaller than, you know, that would have been six hours earlier. Uh, I'm curious if you, you know, if that's something that you think about, does it, have, you know, affect your, you know, device selection and, and you, have you ever seen any issues where they re-bleed? Absolutely. So great point. And I always bring this up to my trainees is you got to overdo it. You got to oversize because the patient, when they're on the table, they're usually clamped down, hypotensive, vasoconstricted. And I've actually seen mistakes of not just myself or my colleagues, but patients coming in from outside. Maybe they were treated in some other city yesterday for a renal injury, and, and then all of a sudden you put them on the table, and it looks like there's a coil just floating in this bigger vessel. Well, you put the coil in, now they've maybe their pressure's going back up, they've stopped bleeding a bit, and they get resuscitated, things open up. So what I was taught and what I've learned is two things. Poke the bear. If you see an injury on the scan somewhere, go after it. Don't just do a base catheter run and say, oh, it looks good. Bye. Nope. Get out to the area. Make sure yeah. that it hasn't intermittently stopped or clamped itself down. You really want to make sure that it's not there. And number two, if you are there 
you know, oversize your coils. Obviously you want to be careful. It doesn't come back too far when you're putting it in, but you'd be surprised how much those vessels change. I've had patients come back down and it looks like you've done nothing or, or a terrible job. And the pre, you know, the, the first intervention and the second one look like two different sets of vessels. So totally. there definitely is that effect of patients kind of beefing up, getting resuscitated and things open up. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it opens up on the table, but yeah, it seems to me, and maybe this is just because I'm, you know, haven't done as many of those where they're on the vasopressor. It seems to me that you know a clamp-down vessel can can typically a- accommodate a larger coil than a native vessel of that size. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you can usually make it fit, and and sometimes get creative with you know use some gel foam or liquid embolic too to help yeah. stop that bleeding to really shut it down too. Yeah, you know, and a lot has changed for me in terms of of coil selection since the advent of, of detachables. You know, when I was in training, I, the first time I'd used a detachable, I think I used one detachable coil as a fellow at Penn. I'd never used one before. And, and then, you know, I go out to my next job and I have to like, it's hard work for me to get a nester. Like it's pretty much all I have are detachables. What, what are you primarily yeah. using? Yeah, I would say I, when I was a new attending, I was, I was, you're, you're right. I, we had detachable coils. We didn't use them a whole lot. And I was trained by not to be an ageist, but some old school guys who they didn't exist. So they're just like grab a nest or a tornado. Um, yeah. But I think until you feel really comfortable with the sizing and how they behave, it's perfectly fine to use detachables. Obviously it's a cost factor and that may depend on the practice or hospital you're at. But I would say in trauma, when you're working deep in the pelvis, it's a pretty forgiving place. So yeah. Um, not that you like the idea of practicing on patients, but you can practice at least your coils because you're not going to cause much harm if you if you uh, oversize or undersize a coil. You kind of get the sense of what works. But what I do like about detachables is they're tip, they're typically longer, so you you know you don't yeah. have to put as many coils in. Um, but when you're working in somewhere like high real estate, like a kidney, then I don't think there's a problem with using one there. But places like the liver, deep in the pelvis, where you've got a little bit more forgiving territory, I'm I'm perfectly fine with a push- pushable coil. Yeah. Um, what about in terms of catheter selection? Does your microcatheter choice change depending on organ or, you know, the likelihood of using coils versus liquid or particles? Yeah. So good question. I think, um, you know, the, the balance is trying to get good runs and visualize your vascular territory. So if you're using a microcatheter, like a prograde or something that's high flow where you can get really good pictures, the downside of that is it's an 027 catheter. So putting right. 018 coils through it is a problem and they can get caught. But luckily, I, even since I was a trainee, some better things have come on the market. Like I actually really like a direction microcatheter by Boston Psy. You can get good flow rates through that. A lot of the companies now have some higher uh, volume injection rate catheters that can withstand a power injector that that way you can just get out to where you go and leave it there and drop the coil. So I think there's a lot of better stuff out there now that you don't need to make that change. Yeah. We use a lot of uh, the direction. I'm also a fan of like the true select for the the facial mobilizations when we get gunshot wounds. Anything like really tortuous or really small. Um, yeah, that's a great new catheter. Yeah, it's nice. Okay, let's talk about some specific organs, uh, starting with the spleen. Chris, why does proximal versus distal splenic embolization matter uh, You know, for our trainees? And what's your goal? Yeah, so I think what I when I was a trainee, there really was the shift towards proximal embolization. Yeah. And by proximal, I want to remind people, if you're new to this, that it doesn't mean right where the splenic starts. It just means further back in the territory. It's actually almost like a mid-splenic embolization. Yeah. So what you're looking for is, is you're going to be dropping a coil or a plug sort of in the mid-splenic artery. And, and the whole theory behind it is you're decreasing the pressure head that's heading into the spleen to allow the spleen to heal. So most of the time there's a splenic lack. It's usually the upper pole or mid-pole. Not always. It can be more complicated. But you're trying to decrease the amount of blood going in there so that the blood that is there or the lack that is there can clot and heal the injury that's there. 
without totally disrupting flow to the spleen, you're really aiming towards splenic preservation, especially in these young patients. We know that they can have immunologic effects if they don't have their spleen down the road, particularly in fighting off certain bacteria. So trying to preserve splenic function is important, and that's the goal of that. Because if you look at, or at least when I do, I always do a post-run after I drop that coil or, or plug, and you'll see really good flow coming through the pancreas into the spleen. So that's really what you're trying to accomplish. But if you look at it frame by frame, it's going much slower than your initial run. So that's really the goal of it. And the outcomes of that from the groups in Florida have really shown that that's an effective way of doing it. The old teaching was, you know, just go out to the spleen and blast it with some gel foam or maybe get up close to the lac and coil there. I don't necessarily think that that's wrong. It's just not my preference. And, and I don't know that I can say there's a good study that shows side by side one is superior, but there are trends that show there are higher infection rates um, and complications okay. with distal getting out into the hilum of the spleen and blasting it, uh, which makes sense because they've already got an injury there. You're throwing a bunch of gel foam at it. It becomes dead tissue. They're at higher risk of an abscess or infection. Again, I don't think it's ever been shown to be statistically significant, but there's certainly a trend in that direction. No, Chris, I'm curious what you do with these. I have got to the point where if I see a small focus of extravasation, you know, unless there's just like a gross intraperitoneal bleed, I'm still usually just doing proximal embolization and I'm not really going after those distal bleeds, at least not routinely, unless it's huge. What about you? I agree with you. Unless I see, so what I tell the trainees is usually you'll see the lack or there's a lack of the parenchymal blush kind of where the lack is if, if it's been injured or devascularize, or what I commonly see, I describe as like a starry sky appearance. You see okay. little small yeah. injuries along that lack. And those are probably just small vascular pseudoase or something like that. And what I go after is if I do see a pseudoaneurysm, you know, that's focal or a really large focal bleed, I think it's worth getting as selective as possible, taking care of it. Because once you do a proximal embolization, you're hosing yourself for getting back in. So yeah. you don't have a way back in unless you do a direct stick um, under CT or ultrasound, which partners of mine have had to do if a pseudoA is developed later or you just didn't see it the first time. So if I see a big pseudoA, some area that's absolutely gushing way out there, I go after it. Those little areas of active extrad, those little starry sky, don't worry about it. Okay. Proximal embo, decrease the pressure head usually stops. Okay. Uh, in terms of catheters, you know, I mean, I, I traditionally done these with the microcatheter and, and one of my older partners at my current job looked at me and it's like, what are you doing? You know, just use the, the, the base catheter. I'm still mostly using the microcatheter. What what are you using? Yeah, I don't think it's wrong either way. I actually try a base catheter. I like a four French Cobra. Yeah, you get a stiff glide out. Yeah, tends to straighten out. I mean, most people their splenic arteries tortuous. I've seen some really bad ones, and you can't get there uh -huh. with a base catheter. But usually, a Cobra stiff glide, you can somehow make it out to the middle. You can drop a plug. It's really fast. But yeah, that doesn't always work at midnight, one in the morning. <laughs> if you need a microcatheter, it's not a sign of weakness. It actually works just as well. There are plenty of coils that go through them. Actually, pod coils, which have come on the market in the past few years, um, I think those can go through a prograde. So they're great. Um, those work. Yeah, those work really well. And you know what? You put three or four of them in. It doesn't take that long. You get as good of a result as a, as an Amplatzer plug. I say that's yeah. just as good. Yeah, so I'm using a lot of. Uh, I'm using some detachables there. I'm using the Boston Scientific coil. The interlocks, I'm using a decent bit of interlocks here. But yeah, those work great. So this is a basic question about embolization for the trainees. Let's say you're using a, you know, a nester or even a detachable coil. What can you, you know, what would you see on an angio when you're trying to get the coil out that would tell you your coil is undersized or oversized? Yeah, good question. So I would say in my experience, most of the time, an adult splenic artery is going to be somewhere around six millimeters. Again, mm -hmm. they can be clamped down. So I will usually aim to put in 
at least a six millimeter, seven, or even eight. If, if I'm using an Amplitzer plug, I always go for eight. Okay. It's the biggest that it comes in for an Amplitzer four. So I usually aim to put a coil in, but you're right. Even I, the problem I've had, I'm a fan of concertos for detachables. They don't form that great in the splenic. They just don't catch the edge, whether they're undersized or oversized. I trouble with that too. Yeah. And, and a lot of times because they're not the bulkiest of coils, you'll seat the coil and it's not quite thrombosing yet. And I've even had the blood that's coming kind of push Me it downstream too. so it can in float down towards run. the island. <laughs> yeah. I, I think any of us who've done enough of them have had that happen or you got this nice coil plug and I've seen it just, whoosh, and probably yeah. what happens is the patient's stopping bleeding. They get a little resuscitated and the yeah. thing just moves. But I do find pods have overcome that. They're a bit bulkier. Uh, they work well. And then the old school tornadoes, nesters work well. But I would say if, you know, when you're getting more comfortable with this, measure it real time. Maybe it's a smaller, thinner patient that their vessel's a little smaller and, and oversize it by one or two millimeters are usually fine. And I've had plenty that look beautiful and I've had plenty that look ugly, but they accomplish the same thing. So don't worry about it. Yeah. I've, I've noticed with splenics, like it, it really with coils of any type, sometimes it's hard to get it to, to kind of flop over in the proximal splenic artery. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm using pod coils, interlocks, and chertos, you know, any one where you have a choice between a regular coil and a soft coil, this is somewhere where I, I pretty much always choose this soft selection. It tends to form better for me. Um, exactly. And then after that, I don't care what I use. <laughs> and if I've really had a hard time for, forming the coil, if I can't, I will park it in the pancreatic magna or the upper pole branch. And it's not the end of the world. If you okay. go into the origin of those, there's going to be good collateral. So if you yeah. really need to get it to seat itself on something, use those as an anchor. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then what about for the liver? How do you approach these? Uh, you know, I mean, often I don't even see like a specific bleed. It's usually, I don't want to say usually, sometimes the size of the laceration or the amount of blood around the liver that gets me in there. Yeah. And I, I would say for our, our liver protocol uh, for trauma, we typically, most of them hemodynamically unstable, go to the OR. If they can't get it under control, they're often calling us intra-op okay. and saying, hey, this is pretty bad. Come in. And again, half the time I'll see a focal bleed in one or two segments. In those cases, I'm elegant about it. I'll go after it, try to coil it, glue it. But if it's diffuse injury, diffuse lack, the patient's unstable, kind of like what you're alluding to, I'll just treat that lobe. It doesn't hurt really to gel foam bomb it, right or left lobe. But, um, you know, yeah. there are some complications we can talk about that happen in these patients that, you know, it may not help, but it, it, you're compromising risks of an embolization versus bleeding to death. And I'll, you know, I'll take the risks of embolization and just try to stop the bleeding if I can. What specifically do you run into in the liver, you know, in terms of, of issues from embolization? Yeah. So, uh, one of my former colleagues here, Sharon Kwan, she used to be here now, she's at Utah. She did a, a study with the surgeons looking at, at post-embolization complications after specifically liver embolizations. And it makes sense to me as if you have the lack going through the liver, you're disrupting some of the venous perfusion and drainage as well. And then you take out the artery you know, it can be a double hit for, for the dual blood supply of the liver. So in those patients, there's a higher, a slightly higher risk of necrosis, biliary okay. injury, bilomas, needing surgery to remove dead tissue. But I don't think that study in itself says that it's from the embolization. Maybe it would have happened to okay. those patients anyway. So really the answer to that question would come from a study of patients that weren't intervened on versus ones that went to IR. Nobody's probably going to do that, but I, I think you can't say the embolization alone causes that. But usually what I'll tell the team or surgery is this patient may be at higher risk if we have to embolize a big territory. Just keep an eye on them that they're not developing liver necrosis. Yeah, the liver seems like the organ where I'm, I'm most likely to embolize even if I don't see our clear arterial injury on CT. I, you know, in my 
admittedly limited experience, you know, even bleeds that I've, I've felt are probably either hepatic venous or portal venous tend to improve to some degree from an arterial embolization. Is, is that just, you know, I mean, do you agree or is that just something I'm <laughs> making up? Yeah. And I, again, I think with, with an injury in the liver, I'll be honest, I think probably the more problematic issue is that it goes through the venous supply. So, yeah. you know, when you look at the lack, it, it's often going, you know, into the hepatic vein or portal vein and, and patients that have really severe liver injuries. Uh, I, I know there's a couple studies out of Japan that have looked at it is when they have high fluid requirements, they almost always have a venous injury. So the veins can be more problematic, but you're right that I almost, I feel zero guilt. Maybe if I can decrease the pressure head or some, yeah. some flow into this area, it might help, right? I mean, even if it's coming from partly the portal, it decreasing a little bit of the blood supply to the artery to let it heal. I don't yeah. think you lose much by doing that. Okay. Uh, oh, one more thing. You say you use glue sometimes in uh, in the liver. When are you using glue in instead of gel foam, for example? Yeah, I like to use it if I see a real focal injury, like say okay. there's a big pseudoaneurysm or some big fistula, some big gear. We actually do occasionally treat some penetrating trauma. So, you know, stab wounds or gunshot yeah. wounds, you often will see these kind of dramatic vascular injuries. In that case, I will do glue, but that kind of depends on your tech and how good, good it, they are at setting it up and quickly for you. Right. Otherwise, just coiling it or gel foam bombing it doesn't hurt it. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about kidney. Kidney for me is, is probably the organ I'm treating the least. So, you know, for you, when are you typically moving ahead with an embolization on these? Is it based mainly on the imaging? Yeah. So kidney, uh, for anybody that does a lot of trauma, the least injured organ, it's only about, you know, major kidney or renal injuries are like one to 3% of of solid organ injury. So you're not going to see them often. And I would say I only end up doing a couple a year and probably that's the one organ most people feel the least comfortable or at least have the least experience in. And I would say that most of them are lower grade injuries. They're retroperitoneal. They're usually in a protected location. Most of the time they're, they're low grade and you can just conservatively manage them. The study was actually done here at Harborview by our urology group was the surgeons don't like to operate because when they go in there, they find bleeding, they end up taking the kidney out. It's not like right. they're elegant and they can just remove one little sliver of the kidney. So right. they don't operate unless the thing is shattered or, or the patient's really, really unstable. So if, if anything, IR is the in-between of that, you know, either okay. conservatively manage it or it's coming to you. So I would say they're usually higher grade injuries or they, they get a CAT scan, a CTA, and they see some active extrav and it's a major injury. So then they'll come to us, you know, the, there have been a couple studies which show there are some CT predictors, like the size of the hematoma, how much has displaced the kidney, there's active extrab. Those are, are good predictors of needing angioembolization. But I would just say when I'm asked to do it, I take a look at it and say, yeah, that seems reasonable. They're unstable. Their crits drop. They've got active extrav. I'll do it. Okay. Just for trainees, uh, why can't you just do a proximal renal embolization? Why is it different from the spleen? Right. So the spleen, what are the consequences if you screw up a spleen or gel foam bomb it? They could lose almost all or, all or all of their spleen. They may end up needing a splenectomy. We all know that you can take the spleen out and you're not, your life isn't over. But a kidney, you want to be as elegant as possible. You're worried about renal function, right? So you want to get as close to the injury and try to embolize as little renal tissue as possible because potentially you could be you know, ruining the renal function. Now, I would say from most renal injuries, even in it, remember most traumas, usually younger, healthy people, not always. There are old people that fall off ladders and get in car accidents, but a lot of times it's a younger population. They could lose probably their whole kidney and their renal function wouldn't change that much. We know that from kidney donors. So sure, their creatinine may go up to 1.4, 1.5. They've got to be careful about eating protein, but you know, you could take out quite a bit of the kidney and not have a problem, but you don't want to just do a proximal, you know, renal artery embolization with a coil and be done. There's really no need for that. 
you have the tools to get closer to it. Just treat that segment of the kidney that's injured. You know, even if it's a major injury, try to preserve 10% of the kidney. If you can, you might as well do that. For renal injuries that I'm treating, I'm, I'm typically getting pretty selective and I'm using coils. One thing that comes yep. up in the kidney more than I see elsewhere are, are small fistulas. Uh, how do you approach those? You know, fistulae are common and, and if you do enough uh, biopsies at any center, pretty much every patient develops a small fistula right after you do it. They tend to just heal on their own and don't cause a problem, but there are plenty that become a problem. So I would say the same is true. A renal lack is just like doing a big biopsy is like a big chunk of tissue that's been disrupted. So a lot of times because of the high blood flow in the kidney, there's going to be a fistula there. So I would say if you know you have time to be elegant, glue is great for fistulae. I've, I've certainly used it a bunch. Coiling proximal to it is, is also not a problem. I mean, most of the kidney, the arteries are going to be end artery distribution. So if you can get close enough to it that it's not persisting, a coil is just fine. Okay. So I think we should talk about pelvis. I mean, for me, that, that's probably what I'm treating the most. Uh, it's, yeah. it's pretty unique. But I want to discuss a study you and your colleagues did and published earlier this year. And, and I think it was in trauma surgery and acute care. It was titled Balloons Up. Uh, shorter time to angioembolization is associated with reduced mortality in patients with shock and complex pelvic fractures. What were you guys looking at and, and what did you learn? Yeah, and I, I'd say this was uh, eye-opening to me because I think as an IR, sometimes you spend a lot of time waiting and oh, when's the patient going <laughs> to be ready? And I thought I did not think our times were as good as that that study showed. So I was they actually pretty really good. proud of my, yeah, proud of my trauma team. And what was remarkable is I worked with a bunch of surgeons on that study and, and it showed the, that per hour that you're later to intervening, the odds ratio of causing mortality is like 1.7 per hour. So that makes complete sense. The longer you wait to intervene, the more problems and the chance, increased chance of death the patients are going to have. So the faster you can get them in, faster you can get them treated, the better they're going to be. Makes logical sense. So uh, what was remarkable to me was, and not to bag on shock trauma, they're a great place, but their average uh, time was more in the range of about four hours. Wow. But those patients, most of their patients go to CT beforehand. Ours do not. We still operate on a very archaic protocol, but it actually works quite well. And that is, they come into the ER, you rule out solid organ injury. So either by FAST or, or DPL, but mostly by FAST, you say, okay, there's no intraperitoneal blood. They're unstable. They have a known pelvic fracture. Just go to IR. And I, I yeah. was very cynical of that protocol as an as an early as an early attending and even as a trainee. But when I've really looked at the research we've done, it, it it's a good predictor. It's as good as CT, which is surprising. But CT, of course, gives you more information. But as far as predicting the need for angiography, that algorithm that we use alone does work. I'm not faulting any place that gets CT and everybody. In fact, I think that's better for a lot of reasons. It's just not the way we do it. So we're pretty quick and our average time was about 75 minutes or so, or maybe it was 80 something minutes to get them into the angio suite. Um, so about an hour and a half, which is pretty good. Like I said, a lot of what you're competing with is a high se injury severity score, head injuries, a leg that's in traction. Yeah. People are there trying to sew up lacs, do all, you know, get lines in. It's a little bit different than some other patients in the hospital. So a lot of times getting a patient with a destination and a disposition from the ER is the challenging part. So you're kind of crashing them to IR. So getting their, them there within about an hour, hour and a half is pretty good in my book. No, I loved the paper because that, that's kind of in line with what we're doing here, which was new for me, was doing it without a CT. And ours is not establishing a protocol to come straight to IR. It's just the way it happens. We'll see these open book pelvic injuries on an x-ray and, you know, we just don't have time to, to go to CT. And so those are our fastest cases. I mean, they'll, they'll come to us. Sometimes they'll get like a 
XFIX or something first or, you know, get a binder on and come to us and they'll get the CT, but it's often after. And I'm with you. I mean, they, it, it's it's an important point. I mean, these open book pelvic injuries, I mean, if you don't mind, you know, telling for our trainees, like, I mean, why, why did those contribute so much to, to pelvic, I mean, to hemodynamic instability compared to, you know, like a, a splenic injury? Yeah. And I think the, the main issue there is the vessels involved, there are so many. So I, I tell people what I was taught by one of my old school attendings in the ER was rings break in two places, right? So yeah. it's like holding a pretzel. So the pelvis is the same way. I mean, the front of it opens, the back also is stretching. Usually the ligaments, the sacroiliac joint. So not only do you have injuries in the front of the pelvis, they're also going to be in the back. So in and it's not always arterial that are the issue. It's they can have significant venous bleeding and lose quite a bit of blood very quickly. So you, you've just got a lot of real estate there. A splenic injury can be really bad. Patients can be hypotensive, but the territory and the number of vessels there is much different than in the pelvis. So the main difference is just the amount of vessels and and you can lose quite a bit of blood going into no man's land before it's a problem. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the pelvis is pretty good at, at, you know, kind of slowing down its own bleeding and then you tear up all the ligaments and, and all of a sudden it just, that the capacity to, to hold blood expands. Exactly. And we're getting a lot of these when they have binders in place. And I've actually had cases where I can't get the mic. I mean, the binders are on so tight that, uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time getting my catheter through it. And so we've had to, you know, let down binders. Sometimes we have to get, you know, a little bit creative with access. I remember one I had maybe a month ago where the, the patient had a binder on and, and these gashes in the groins. And I was like, I don't want to go femoral there. It's like, we'll do radial. I was like, oh, it also has an open left wrist fracture. I was like, okay, we'll do right radial. It has an open <laughs> right radial fracture. And so I ended, uh, I mean, at right wrist fractures, I ended up having to just prep out as best we could and just go just above one of the fractures. I think I ended up, you know, accessing the brachial. Yeah. But so actually bringing up that, you know, the, the point about the, the binders, do you, I mean, are, are your surgeons using those a lot? We have a whole pelvic trauma team, which I think sure. is unusual just because we see so much of it, probably due to our referral base and just some high mechanism injuries. But the benefit here is that once they come in from the field, they're sheeted by ortho. So you okay. can cut through the sheet. So I almost never okay. have a problem with access, but I could see how at some centers, if they just leave the binder in place or whatever they put it on the outside, get them down to IR. So I think in those cases, radial is a really good way to go or brachial. And we all have those cases where we remember of, oh, this is occluded and you're getting access in these weird spots or in multiple spots. I've, I've certainly been there. Or you go to get access and there's this huge degloving groin injury. The oh. poor patient's got tissue hanging off. So a lot of times, you know, how it looks on x-ray or CT is not what, <laughs> what shows up in the bay. So um, you got to get creative. I don't always do it, but I'll sometimes, you know, if they have a binder on, I'll do my embolization and then take the binder down and then do another one. Uh, yeah, you never know absolutely. See. Um, yeah. You may be tamponading whatever bleed is there. So you got to be careful. So how are you embolizing these? I mean, when the ones that you're going straight to angio without a CT, how are you doing them? Yeah. So, uh, you know, typically, and we published a paper here several years ago, you got to check the external iliac arteries in addition to your internal Every up to time. 20%. Yeah. Up to 20% of injuries come off the external, whether, and the most common culprits are, are replaced obturator, um, some external pudendal and other random branches, inferior epigastrics, circumflex arteries. But so frequently you have injuries there, but of course the main culprits, your superior glute, um, obturators, internal pudendals are the most commonly injured ones. So we check both sides, four-vessel angio. I would say gel foam here is my friend. It's, it's easy. It's forgiving. 
you can take out both internals with a very low risk. Um, one of my partners here, Wayne Monsky, published that out of Davis uh, over 10 years ago, that you can do it with a, a relatively low risk of complications or long-term complications. So we think. It, the patient, I'm not going to blame it on them, but when you have uh, a severe pelvic injury and you're lying in bed for a month and you have a long recovery and you've probably disrupted ligaments and nerves, it's hard to say the embolization is really the problem for causing you know some skin necrosis right. or impotence. Likely a lot of that is just the injury itself and, and yeah. the recovery. But I would say the, the risks are, are pretty low. You should still be careful and not just do it cavalier, but truly unstable patients, even if I don't see anything major, a lot of times on the side of injury, I will still give gel foam because again, it's probably coming from some severe venous injury. And I feel if you decrease the pressure head in, um, it gives it some time to heal. But I frequently see a lot of positive angios. And in those cases, I'm elegant when I can, similar to the liver, get out to whatever vessel's bleeding, coil it off. You know, if, if you have diffuse injury, then I gel foam it. I've definitely used glue for difficult to treat, um, you know, big pseudo A's, things like that. But I would say coils are your friend in gel foam here. Okay. So I have two questions about that. You know, when you're, when you see a specific artery that's injured uh, and, you know, you go out and you, you coil that, are you still gel foaming the internal iliac after that or doing the other side as well? Or it all depends? Not necessarily. It all depends. I would, again, if the patient's super unstable, you know, I would say I feel pretty satisfied if, if I see, you know, internal pudendals bleeding, go out, coil it that probably was, and that's close to where their injury was, then I okay. feel satisfied with that. If I see other sort of diffuse injuries, little pseudo A's, things like that, then sure, maybe I'll, I'll put in some gel foam afterwards. Okay. Uh, that's an area where probably more than anywhere else, um, that's when I'm getting the patients whose arteries are really clamped down and the internal iliac just oh, yeah. like all Absolutely. spasmed. And so when I see the spasm, even if I don't see extravasation, I'm, I'm gel foaming both sides for those ones, at least like every time. Yeah, exactly. And again, I mean, the risk of causing a complication is not zero, but I would say that when those patients, it's life or death, take the risks and, and keep them alive and stop the bleeding. Uh, another question I have about this, you know, here and in the liver, I, I use a lot of gel foam and, and something I've always wondered is, is Chris, I mean, do you think that the way you mix up the gel foam, I mean, the actual amount of that pad that you use, do you think it really matters? I, I, I'd like to think so. I try to tailor it to what I'm trying to do. Am I, do I see a lot of diffuse injury where I need it to go far or do I need to get in and out of there and I want some thick stuff to plug it up? What I would say is I have made the mistake in my early years of underembolizing. Okay. I don't think you need to go to complete stasis or so that it's right up to the origin of the internal such that there's no flow there. But I probably given a little too little gel foam on a couple of occasions because okay. I've had patients come back even the same day where the surgeons are like, this guy is still really unstable. Bring him back down. It looks like you did almost nothing. So it's I like, all right. Too. Yeah. So what I was taught by a, a colleague of mine was smoke break, meaning when you think you're done embolizing, give it a few minutes, give some more. So make sure that you give yourself some time or at least give it a few minutes, let it go through. You can always end up giving more. So yeah. if anything, I overembolize a little bit. That's the way I usually do it is I give myself as much time as it takes me to embolize the other side. So mm -hmm. I'll do my gel foam on the right, if, if that's the side that I'm going for. Then I'll go treat the left, and then I'll go look at the right again, and then I'll go look at the left again. Yeah. So for the one where it's like, you know, just diffuse injury, kind of spasm down, how much of a, a gel foam pad are you using and how much contrast do you use? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the packets that we get, they come in a small amount. It's 
I would say it's probably a centimeter in width by three, maybe one by three centimeters. Okay. We have really big pads that you can cut up as well. That's right. Uh, but I would say of those small ones, you end up needing probably around two for the average okay. internal iliac if you're treating it from there. I cut it up in small pieces, mix it with contrast, usually about two thirds. So it's enough that you can see it. Obviously, bigger patients, it can be harder to see. So thick, you know, uh, uh, more dense contrast so that you can see it under okay. x-ray or under, under angio. So. Okay. And then the last question I have really is, is in terms of closure for femoral access or, or is this a, a fellow seal, uh, or I guess not fellows anymore, resident seal, or do you use closure devices in these patients? Or do you sometimes leave a sheath behind for the trauma team? Yeah, I would say all of those. I, I think historically we used to leave a lot more sheaths in, but the problem we ran into, and I'd say I would only do that if they really need it as an A-line, um, or I really think that there's a high chance that I'm going to have to come back. And that, I don't, I would say that's not actually that common. The reason for that is we used to leave a lot of them in. They'd go up to the unit. You'd try to go take it out. They were down in the OR. <laughs> so you'd try to be tracking it down. And I don't love leaving a sheath in some, especially a young person's femoral artery for days, um, totally. you know, where it could be occlusive or kinked or clogged. So I try to get it out right away. Just take the time. Even if it's 2 a.m., just close it up. I think in young people, my inclination is to not use closure devices. I think long-term consequences um, or injuring the wall of the femoral artery, I don't take that lightly. So I do a lot of pull and holds and make them do that yeah. for young people. If somebody's older um, or they have a nice big vessel, then I feel fine. Um, I'm with you. Particularly using a perclose or okay. a proglide. So, one final question: It you know, how's your team following these patients after embolization? The ones that are obviously staying in house. Yeah. So for pretty much any of those angios, we and since most of them happen on call, it's usually not right. a person that's scheduled to be there during the day, but. They sign them out to one another. Um, I always, at least when I was program director, every NGO gets a follow-up visit the next day by the IR fellow for a documented pulse exam, yeah. see how they're doing, chart biopsy, hemodynamically stable. If they are, seems like the pelvis is not an issue, sign off. Um, I think one of the pre-questions you sent me was how often do they come back? And there was actually a study here that showed up to 20% of patients need repeat NGO. I would say that oh. seems like an overestimate. You know, I would say less than 10%, but th it's real. And again, sometimes... Like we've been talking about, you've treated it, the patients get resuscitated, some other thing blows open that you didn't see the first time. Yeah. So and you have to remember a lot of these bleeds are intermittent. The patients have vasospasm, maybe they've clawed it off whatever bleed was there, or healed it, they get resuscitated, it opens back up. So I try not to ever take it personally. You're always going to find <laughs> other injuries. And and there are studies that show from CT, you know, that there's a positive finding on CT 20% of the time, you're not going to see it in angio. The CT could be normal, 20% in angio, you're going to see something. So you just have to keep in mind these bleeds are intermittent. Okay. The resuscitation matters a lot. What you see on angio, just treat it. And again, if okay. they're unstable, I just empirically treat a lot of these patients if I feel like it's necessary. Man, that is a really awesome look at this. I think we got a really comprehensive uh, review of this. Is there anything else that you know you think is important to cover that I missed? Uh, not really. I would, I would say I, their SIR made some consensus guidelines, which I was on. I don't tout that as advertising for myself, but I'm, it's a really good review of trauma that, you know, Sid Padia, who's down in LA, who used to be here and one of my colleagues, we yeah. published that. It's a really good review of trauma. I think particularly for trainees. Um, I also wrote a review with some of my colleagues for Rankin Ray. Uh, there's a good chapter on that. If anybody wants some further reading, the one other thing I would say is what becomes complicated territory, pelvis, solid organ. There's a lot out there extremities. It's always hard to know what to do with oh, those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I would just say I, I put a couple things in there as far as what to do with extremities. I think you're going to run into lower much more than upper. Upper, you're almost never going to treat anything up there unless it's diagnostic for surgical planning. So I don't want anybody to stress about that. But kind of like what you were mentioning, you get some weird chest wall things. I, I think those are actually the fun ones. 
an internal mammary because they, yeah, they did an open chest great. and they, they hit it. I've, I mean, I've run into some really weird things, but I think, you know, the legs are a little tricky territory because you don't want to yeah. cause, you know, dead tissue. So uh, what I would say is below the knee in a healthy person, you can take out up to two vessels if they've got a three vessel runoff, or at least you think they would have. So if they've got one vessel, you're fine. If you really needed to do some damage control, try never to embolize any branches of the profunda if you can avoid it, just because okay. you can cause some necrosis of the thigh. Little branches, femoral circumflex, totally fine. Most of the time though, when I've been in extremities, again, it's looking at the angio to make sure they don't have some terribly dislocated, you know, maybe their knees dislocated and the, and the arteries thrombosed or something. It's usually in planning for sort of some surgical thing. So it's rare that I've intervened down there. Yeah, you're right though, that, you know, some of those different ones, you know, the the chest wall or the extremity, you know, those are some of the fun ones. They're fun. And I, I think as a compliment to us and maybe to you too, a lot of times people are like, can you embolize that? And you go look at the patient. It's right here. It's like, you could probably just put pressure on All the it. Time. So I think, <laughs> yeah, I think just remind yourself. And the reason you're not seeing extremity ones is either they need to go to the OR and get fixed right away, or just put some pressure on it. Put some pressure I, you on get it. a lot of calls about thigh ones or even these spontaneous hematomas in the thigh. I just tell people, wrap it up. There's no reason to embolize that Me unless too. it's really catastrophic. Yeah. No, I'm with you. All right, man. Well, Chris, yeah. thank you. This is fantastic. Yeah. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.